Can you hear me? Good job, Jacob. Thank you. See how this one works. This is a whole different thing. Different animal. Okay. Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 11. And we're going to begin in verse 3, which says, The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And then as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowd concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please pray especially with me this morning as we look to this difficult but wonderful text. Father, we ask now that you would help us to understand your truth, help us to make sense of your word here, looking back at it nearly 2,000 years later from a culture that doesn't understand the culture it was written in. We don't get the greater context. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us. Help us now as we seek to understand you, as we seek to apply this word to our lives, to our minds, and to our hearts, that we might glorify your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. On October 28th, 1949, Jim Elliott wrote this in his journal. He wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot control. A few months later, after writing this, a former missionary to Ecuador was telling Elliot all about the Aka Indians, which were a small but fierce people group who lived deep within the jungles of Ecuador. And in that moment, Elliot became convicted and convinced that it was his mission to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to this people who were completely in the dark, completely lost and dying, separated from Christ. And so Elliot began then spending time preparing for this great missions endeavor. You don't just pick up and leave the next day. He had things he had to prepare to do. For instance, he needed to learn the language. So he went and lived in a, in a town in Ecuador where he could learn the language from people there. And then he also needed to put together a team. So he began finding other missionaries who had a passion and a burden for this people group. But that wasn't the only thing that Elliot did during this extensive time of preparation. Elliot also got married. He was engaged to his sweetheart, Elizabeth Howard, on her 21st birthday, and they were married only 10 months later. And it wasn't long after that that their daughter, Valerie, 
was born. Finally then, after all this extensive planning, after thinking it through, praying it through, in the fall of 1955, believing that what he had written years before in his journal was true, Elliot and his missionary friends set out to make first contact with the Aka Indians. Now, they were careful because they knew this was a dangerous and vicious tribe. They were a violent tribe who were especially dangerous and hostile towards outsiders. And so they didn't just rush right in there. They spent several weeks flying over and dropping packages off, giving them gifts, trying to show that they meant no harm. They even started taking a large speaker horn and started shouting out phrases in their native tongue, letting them know that they meant to help them, that they were friends who wanted to meet them. They shouted simple phrases, which they had learned from a young girl who used to live with the tribe but had left and then befriended one of the missionaries there. And so in light of this welcoming gesture to the tribe, Elliot and his team had determined that they were going to keep reaching out to them until they reciprocated. And reciprocated, they did. In fact, the tribe ended up sending them gifts and leaving them gifts, hoping that they would be able to come together. And so then, in the light of all of this missionary endeavors, they found a place on the riverbed where they could land the plane and safely reach out to meet this people group. And so, Nate Saint, the pilot, the missionary pilot, I should say, he identified a sandbar, sandbar on this river, four and a half miles from the main Aka location, and then they flew over announcing that they were going to land there, and they asked for them to come out and meet them at this location. And they did. Several showed up. And things seemed to be going quite well. They, would met, they met and they would talk extensively. One even older lady came and she stayed late into the night discussing things with them, talking about just life in general, the differences of their culture. They even, the next day, were able to give them plane rides. And over time, several other villagers came out to meet this missionary group and showed interest in them. However, Though things seemed to be going well, what they didn't know was back at camp, there was a major misunderstanding that had happened. And the men back at the camp were severely upset, so upset that they concluded that they should go with violent intentions towards Elliot and his team. And so the next day then, the pilot Nate Saint was flying overhead, and he saw a group of men from the tribe coming towards Elliot and the rest of the missionaries. And he excitedly reported back on the radio that there was more coming. Be ready. This is, he thought this was wonderful. However, when Nate landed the plane, the men came out of the jungle, rushed at them, and began thrusting their spears through them. One of the missionaries protested, letting them know, we mean you no harm. We mean you no harm. Well, another one said in the native tongue of these people, asking them why they were killing them. However, none of this persuaded them against their murderous intents. And so that day, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Uterin were speared to death on the Palm Beach sandbar in the Curare River of Ecuador. Why, though? Why would the Aqua Indians respond so violently to these missionaries? 
Haven't they ever heard the nursery rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? Like, what is the big deal? Like, if you don't want Jesus, just say no and move on. Talk about an overreaction. But was it? Was their reaction to the gospel of Jesus actually that unusual? Was it an overreaction? Well, that depends on who you ask. Because if you ask Jesus, he'll tell you straight up, it's actually not an overreaction. In fact, hostility towards him and his gospel is very much a normal response. See, Jesus' message, it's not a fortune cookie that's full of nice sentiments to tell us how to live a better life. It's not just, hey, you know what, you want your life to be better, just add Jesus, and then all your dreams will come true, and you'll live happily ever after. That's not what Jesus offers, is it? No, Jesus' message is radical. It's life-changing. And once you accept it, you can never go back. You can never be the same way that you were. Not really, because it is a radical message with a radical result. And this is why in Matthew chapter 11, we find Jesus telling us in verse 6, what? look what he says here in Matthew 11. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And look at verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. What's Jesus' point here? Well, I think it's quite obvious. His point is that the gospel he brings is deeply offensive to the point where extreme anger and violence is a normal response to it. So I ask you this morning, do you believe that? Is that the Christianity that you signed up for? Do you believe that it's true that extreme anger, violence, and hostility is a normal reaction of the unregenerate heart to Jesus' gospel message? If not, then I think it's pretty safe to say that you've never really come to truly understand what Jesus' gospel is all about. Because if you did, you would see that his gospel will always invoke a strong reaction. And one of those reactions is deadly violence. And so our passage this morning shows us that the gospel of Jesus brings violence in three ways. And here's what they are. It brings a violence that's unexpected, a violence expected, and a violence third that's rejected. Now, if you remember last week, and you honestly, you should, it's only been a week. But you remember that we focused on verses 2 through 5, and what did we see there? We looked at doubting John. And yes, I said that right. I didn't mean to say doubting Thomas. We looked at doubting John the Baptist. Because in that passage, we saw how John was sending his disciples to Jesus from a prison cell. Asking Jesus what? Asking Jesus if he was truly the coming one. If he was the messianic king that the Old Testament scriptures prophesied of. And what does Jesus tell John in response to that question? Look at verses 4 and 5. He answered them, and he said, Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. That's kind of an interesting response to John's doubt, isn't it? What's he doing? Why is Jesus saying this? How is this evidence to answer John's question? How is this an answer of who the com- that he is the coming one? How does this show that? How does it prove it? Well, to know that answer, you have to know what Jesus is doing with this response. 
And what he's doing is he's responding in a way that really gets to the core of John's doubt, of his frustration, of his confusion. And what is the core of John's doubt? No question about it. He is wondering why he's at the blunt end of the stick of an unexpected violence. This isn't part of the plan. And so John's struggling. He's struggling to take the Old Testament prophecies about what Messiah would do and apply that to the Messiah that he sees before him. And so Jesus responds how to John? By quoting those Old Testament prophecies that are confusing John. And so he quotes the Old Testament. What does he quote in the Old Testament? Well, he's taking different parts of Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, and these are messianic prophecies. Let me show you these. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And then also in Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn. Now, that sounds very similar to Jesus' response, doesn't it? Because it is. That's what Jesus is quoting and responding to John, letting him know, no, I am this. These are speaking of me. You have the right guy. I am the coming one. Okay, now before we jump any further into this passage, I need to give you like a heads-up warning here. This is an extremely difficult text, and it's not rookie-level stuff. This is a passage where there is a lot going on in it, and a lot of it can be really confusing because a lot of it on its own is confusing, but the things it points to even in the Old Testament can be very confusing. So why not just skip over it, you ask? Well, because... We believe this is the word of the living God, and it's for us to know him better and to serve him as we ought. And we have to do that even if the text is difficult. Amen? Yeah. So, I will tell you what. I will make this, I will do my best effort to make this complicated passage as simply as I possible can, as I possibly can, but I'm going to warn you, you better buckle up because this is a challenging text. All right? You've been warned. So, Let's jump into this. Now, when Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61, if you read Isaiah 61, you'll notice something very important. He's leaving out some verses intentionally, and those verses that he leaves out, John would notice this without a doubt. What did Jesus leave out? Did he talk about the captives being set free that Isaiah talked about in that text? No. And that would relate very much to John's situation because what is John at this moment? He's a captive. He's in prison. He's in Herod's prison suffering an unexpected violence because he preached God's word. And so Jesus left that out intentionally because that's at the core of John's question. Jesus doesn't really address John's concern at all directly, does he? He doesn't. John's concern is, hey, I'm in prison. This doesn't seem to be going how the Messiah is supposed to be going, what the prophecy said Jesus would do, what's going on? And so Jesus says, the part about Isaiah 61, where he's healing the sick, raising the dead, all that sort of thing, making the lame walk, but he doesn't address the setting captives free. 
And what's really interesting is Jesus doesn't just quote the Old Testament to John. If you read Luke's account of this passage, what does Jesus do? Starts a whole bunch of miracles, just start flying out and he starts raising the dead, making the lame walk, causing the blind to see, right? He literally fulfills those prophecies right there before John's disciples for John to help John with his concern, to help John with his doubt. And so they go back then telling John what Jesus did, which was fulfill the messianic prophecies that are recorded there in the book of Isaiah. And then what does Jesus turn and say to the crowd that saw all this? Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That seems like a weird thing to follow that up with, doesn't it? Like if somebody came in here this morning and just started going around and healing people of all their different diseases, back problems, whatever, we wouldn't be like offended about that, would we? No. So why does Jesus follow up his healings with blessed is the one who isn't offended by me? Like, what kind of madman is going to get triggered about a great healer making their lives better? What's going on here that leads Jesus to say this? Well, I'll tell you what's going on. What's going on is that Jesus' gospel, in spite of the wondrous miracles, is that unexpected. It's so unexpected that it's offensive even in the face of his great miracles. It's so offensive that Jesus' own prophet his own forerunner, John the Baptist, who prophesied of the Messiah, he was struggling with what Messiah was doing. He was. I mean, think about this. If John is the forerunner of Jesus, the coming, conquering king, why is John in prison on his way to have his head chopped off by King Herod? That doesn't seem like justice. Why is John faring so poorly? And even more so, why does Jesus' ministry seem to be headed down that same path? The powerful weren't accepting Christ. The religious leaders were rejecting him. And we're going to see this in chapters 11 and 12, even more so how great the response of rejection comes. It's massive. If Jesus is the Messiah, how does this fit with what the Old Testament said the forerunner of Messiah would do, as well as what the actual Messiah would do? And if you talk to any unbelieving Jewish person who you know, follows the Old Testament, this is right at the core of their, of their concerns. No, your Messiah, you, you Christians in the New Testament, he doesn't do what Messiah is supposed to do. You got it all wrong. It was the same concern that they had back at Jesus' day. Now, let me show you something here. Malachi 3.1. Here's what this says about the forerunner of Jesus. Behold, I send my messenger... And what is the messenger going to do? He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, the Lord of hosts. And then one chapter later, we find another prophecy of John, because that, that prophecy is of John, right? No questions about it. Jesus literally tells us that's speaking of John. Okay, now here's the question. Look at this next one, Malachi 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for those who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. 
You shall go on leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And now here's the prophecy. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will do what? He will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the law, the land, with the decree of utter destruction. You see John's dilemma here? It's actually a lot worse than you think because we don't have time to look at all these prophecies and look at how they're you know, dealt with in the New Testament. Do you remember how we just said that Jesus was quoting Isaiah chapter 35? He quotes that talking about opening the eyes of the blind, healing the sick, right? All that stuff. Do you know what verses are right before that? Here's what they are. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God, strengthen the hands of the weak, and make firm feeble knees. Say to those who have come with anxious hearts, be strong, fear not. Why? Behold, your God will come with vengeance and and the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Didn't seem like Christ was doing that, did it? Rome was still had their boot on Israel's neck. Things were not going how this passage makes it look like Messiah was going to make things go. And yet here is John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus in prison, about to get his head chopped off. Why? Because he was the forerunner of Christ. What did he do? He was bold. He was fierce. He called the people of Israel to repentance. And that included not just the commoners. He called the religious leaders to repentance. Remember what he said to them? You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. What's the wrath John's talking about? We just read it. That's what he's referring to. This coming wrath of the Lord. That's why he said, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Not only did the religious leaders reject forerunner of Christ and the Christ, but they also, but also the kings of that time rejected him. Did Herod respond well to John's message of the proclamation of the kingdom? No. Locked him up. He's upset about it. Upset about the sin that he called out in his life. So the question is, where was this Messiah who would come to powerfully save, as Isaiah chapter 35 speaks of? See the dilemma here? Where was this Messiah, the saving one? Well, as we know now, looking back, he was right there healing the sick, making the deaf hear, the lame walk, the blind see, and raising the dead. And why? To show that he truly was the coming one who would come and save. But that salvation that he brings comes in a very unexpected way. It doesn't come how we expect it would. It didn't come how John expected it would, nor the people of John's day. That's why Jesus is saying, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. You see that? That's what he's getting at here. Isaiah says that this God is coming with vengeance and recompense, with justice and judgment. And he did, but not in the way John and them thought that he would. There's a pastor I follow, and I was listening to him, reading him as he talked about 1 Kings 19, and it was a pretty interesting parallel he made here. He pointed out how with Elijah, when Elijah was off in a cave by himself, the Lord shows up, and he's like, why are you pouting, Elijah? What's, what's, what's going on here? And Elijah, you know, he's kind of grumpy and, 
you know, sulking about it, but he's like, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one left who serves you. Things aren't going how they should, God, not the way that they ought. And so what does God tell Elijah? He tells him to go outside and stand outside the entrance of the cave because he's going to pass before him. So first, a strong wind comes by that tore through the mountain and powerfully broke apart all the stones. And what does the text say? It says, but the Lord was not in the wind. Then a powerful earthquake comes. I mean, a big earthquake. And it says, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then finally, a huge, mighty fire. But also, the Lord was not in the fire. And finally, last, there was the sound of a small, quiet voice, a whisper, where the Lord audibly spoke to him. It wasn't some voice in his head. It wasn't a voice in his heart. It was an audible voice he heard. And what was the point God was making to Elijah with all this? I'm not coming how you might expect. I am not doing things in human history how you would think. I don't come at first with a strong wind, with a powerful earthquake, with a mighty voice. I come quietly with a whisper, not in a way that you might expect. Because if I did come with that mighty wind, with the mighty earthquake, with the power on hand that the Old Testament prophesies Christ will soon do, that's not going to go for sinners the way they think it's going to go. It's not going to go for those who even worship Yahweh how they think it's going to go. See, if God had come wielding justice, wrath, and divine vengeance like Isaiah talked about, every single one of us would be crushed, including John the Baptist. But because God came bearing the justice of God upon himself, the wrath of God upon himself, and the divine vengeance of God upon himself, we can be spared from this coming where there is vengeance and recompense. You see that? Isaiah 53.5 tells us how this was made possible, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Though the unexpected violence upon the Son of God brings us peace, for many it invokes hatred, it invokes anger and bitterness, which often then lashes out at a violence that we should expect. Jesus tells us to expect it, and that leads us to our second point. Jesus' gospel brings a violence that's unexpected, and secondly, a violence that should be expected. Okay, Why does the unexpected violence upon the Son of God lead to angry and violent responses? Well, to answer that, we've got to dig into this passage a little bit more, all right? Look with me at what Jesus says to the crowd about John after they saw John's doubt. He addresses this, right? Because they all see the forerunner of Christ sending his servants, being like, are you really the Christ? Like, not a good look for the Messiah, right? Or for his forerunner. So he sends the, the disciples head back to John to tell him about the proof that Jesus saw. And so in verse 7, here's what it says. As they went away, Jesus began speaking to the crowds concerning John. And here's what he says. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Remember the prophecy we just looked at in Malachi? Keep going. 
Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. You see what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is saying, John's doubt doesn't prove him as some weakling. No. John wasn't a reed blown about and shaken in every direction by the cultural winds. That's what Jesus' illustration is getting to because that was their immediate thought, right? Is he a reed blown about by the wind? Is he tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, as Ephesians 4 mentions? No, says Jesus. John, unlike the religious leaders of that day, was just like Elijah. Yeah, sure, Elijah had his moment, but so did the next Elijah, which was John. But nevertheless, like Elijah, John the Baptist overall was a bold, fierce, and strong prophet of the Lord. He was committed to his mission, living a simple life just like Elijah did. He ate and dressed like Elijah. He spoke like Elijah. And yet, during John's public ministry, the crowds flocked to him. Why? Not because he was some weak, spineless doubter. No, they flocked to him because they saw the same spirit and power of Elijah that was in him that obviously was from the Lord. He was the one who would prepare the way for the Lord. And that's why Jesus says, in fact, you know what? He's not just a prophet. He's more than a prophet. He's a super prophet. Why is he a super prophet? Well, two reasons. One, not only did the prophecies in the Old Testament speak of him and they were fulfilled in him, but he also prophesied as well about the coming Messiah. And everything came down to him. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets pointing out that Christ was coming. And so Jesus gives him more than just a nice compliment here. Look at verse 11. He goes even beyond that. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And yet remarkably, Jesus goes on to say what? After giving doubting John this wonderful compliment, what does he go on to say? Look at the next verse. Look at verse 11. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than even he. Church, do you get how remarkable that is? John the Baptist was the most privileged, the most esteemed of all the Old Testament prophets. He was greater than anyone who had ever lived. Those are Jesus' words, which means he was greater than Adam. He was greater than Abraham. He was greater than David and even greater than Elijah. And yet, what does Christ say? Compared to kingdom citizens... Even the least in Christ's kingdom is greater than even the greatest. Think about this. Somewhere in some place, there's a Christian, to put it bluntly, they're the weakest, right? They are the puniest, scrawniest, most pathetic Christian to have ever lived. Hopefully it's not in this room, but, right? but there is somebody who has that position in the mind of God. That's just the way it is, all right? And you know someone's got that title because Jesus mentions that here. And in the kingdom, here's his point. When we one day rule and reign with Christ, that most pathetic person, that weakest Christian, is going to star on the kingdom's version of dirty jobs, or whatever that is going to look like. And even so, even having that position, they are going to be even greater than the greatest which is John the Baptist. Does that sound like something that's super lowly and kind of a miserable position? No, not at all. Jesus says, what about this person? 
Does he say that they got into the kingdom by the skin of their teeth and they should be lucky just to be there and clean the toilets? No, not at all. He says that they are greater than even the greatest man to have ever lived. Now, if that's Christ's view of even the least in his kingdom, what kind of joy should that bring us? A lot. You see now why Jesus says in verse 6, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus says this because his gospel brings a violence that's to be expected. And it's expected, why? Because it completely guts human pride. you got no reason to boast. You don't get to look at Christians around you and be like, wow, that person might actually be the least. You don't get to do that. Not even a little bit. You don't get to do that because the gospel completely takes human pride off at the knees. What does this term gospel mean? The gospel of Jesus Christ. We say, what does that mean? Well, is it the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? No, it's not what we mean. What the gospel means is, it means good news, which is mentioned right in verse 5. And why is it good news? Because it is given to those who do not deserve it. Why do the poor here get the gospel preached to them? Is Jesus saying that if I'm rich, I'm lost, and that if I'm poor, then I'm saved? Is that his point? Not at all. Jesus is talking about what he said back at the beginning in his Sermon on the Mount, which is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not is the poor financially, who is poor in spirit. See, the gospel is good news to the poor, because the poor in spirit realize how poor they really are. They realize how spiritually blind they are, how spiritually lame they are, how spiritually diseased, deaf, and dead they are. And because they realize this, they embrace the gospel of Jesus, which is good news. Good news that tells them not about what they must do to reach God, but what God has done to save them. As Isaiah said, behold, your God is coming to save you. And what has God done to save them? He sent his son to die for us, as we read. By his stripes we are healed. Do you see why this unexpected gospel now invokes such a strong and violent reaction from the rich in spirit? They hate it. It offends their pride. It offends them at the deepest level. It tells them this. It tells them that before a holy God, they are just as guilty as Hitler is and deserving of hell. You believe that about yourself. Who wants to believe that about themselves? The gospel of Jesus tells us that apart from the saving grace of Christ, Gandhi and Mother Teresa deserve nothing but a seat next to Hitler in hell. Is there any wonder why there's such a violent response against Jesus' gospel? Which is why verse 12 says that from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. The thing is, without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, that's what our hearts are going to do. They will respond in hatred to the gospel. Because it hallows it. Our hearts reject it. It despises it. And consequently, it responds in this wrong manner. But for those of us who are poor in spirit, that's not how we respond, is it? No. 
For we have come to accept Christ's gospel, not by our works that we would boast, but by the grace of God for the glory of God, which leads us to our last point. Jesus' gospel brings a violence unexpected, a violence expected, and third, a violence that is to be rejected. Look at verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, then he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What does that mean? What does that mean that John is Elijah who is to come if, that's a condition, you are willing to accept it? All right, to answer that, we need to look back at Malachi. Look at Malachi 4, 5 through 6 with me again. Here's what it says. I'll put it up on the screen. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. What's that prophet going to do? He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. In this passage, God promises to send Elijah as the forerunner before the great and awesome day of the Lord. That's the day of judgment. No questions about it. Psalm 2 type stuff. The question remains, if John was the prophesied forerunner of Christ, the Elijah to come, where's the day of the Lord? And why does Jesus say this conditional statement, if you are willing to accept it, then he is the Elijah to come? Do you see the dilemma with this passage? See why I warned you at the start, this is a really difficult passage? There's a lot going on in it. See, there's another problem. Elsewhere, Jesus tells his disciples that John is the Elijah to come, though they did not recognize him. And yet also, John says elsewhere that he's not the Elijah to come. Which is it? Okay, so here's the ridiculously, ridiculously, super ridiculously, way too short version of dealing with this passage, and we're going to move quickly for it, through it. Okay, last week I mentioned, and earlier I think today, how Matthew 12, 11 and 12 are major turning points in Matthew's gospel, okay? They are, and they begin to show us the people's response to Messiah, which culminates in chapter 12 with them saying, Jesus is from hell. He's, he's basically Beelzebul. He's working for Satan, or is Satan. Depends on how you interpret that. But that's what it culminates in. That's the unpardonable sin. But anyways, that's what Matthew 11 and 12 are showing us. It's showing us the turning point in Matthew's gospel where the crowds stop cheering and be excited, where the, there's a turn, there's a shift, showing a negative response to Jesus as the Messiah. And, spoiler alert, by the end of Matthew's gospel, they completely reject him, don't they? It culminates with him being crucified upon a cross. But before that happens, what is Jesus doing during his earthly ministry? If he's planning and preparing for that, what is he doing throughout it? He's presenting himself as the Messiah and offering the nation of Israel the kingdom. He's saying, if you accept it, if you accept me as your Messiah, you can have the kingdom now. Yes, Christ still would have had to die for our sins, no questions about that, but if the Jewish people had accepted Christ's offer of the kingdom, if they had accepted that John the Baptist was the Elijah to come, the conditional statement at the end of our text this morning, then Christ would have ushered in the earthly kingdom as Malachi 4 is speaking of here. This is why Jesus says, John is the Elijah to come if you are willing to accept it. It's a conditional statement. But, since they did not accept it, yes, as Jesus points out, 
Elijah, John was the Elijah to come in part, but not in the whole, not in full. That is still coming. And when? Before the great day of the Lord. And we see in Revelation chapter 11, one of the two witnesses who very well may be this Elijah to come, prophesying of the coming day of the Lord. Whether that's literally Elijah, we don't know, or symbolically Elijah, like it was for John, we must realize that this is still yet to come. The day of the Lord has not happened. It has not come yet. It didn't happen with the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, where it was pretty bad. But compared to that, the day of the Lord makes that look like a birthday party. Now, regardless of all that, here's our big takeaway. Here's Jesus' main point. Look at verse 15. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let us hear what, though? Let us hear the gospel message of Jesus that brought an unexpected violence upon the one and only Son of the living God in order to spare us from the coming wrath of God. Let us hear the gospel message of Jesus that brings an unexpected violent reaction to it as man, man's proud heart rebels against it. Let us hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ that brings a violence that is rejected as we embrace the coming one who laid down his life for us and embraced violence upon himself so that we might live. And if we embrace all that by the grace of God, then even the least of us will be greater than even the greatest. Not because we're actually great, right? No, not even close. But because Christ's greatness is infused into us. His righteousness is our righteousness. And his righteousness is perfect. His righteousness is supreme. After her husband was slain, Elizabeth Elliot wrote her story down in a book that she titled in a very special way. She titled it Shadow of the Almighty, which is a title that comes from Psalm 91.1, which says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Just two years after her husband's death, with a 10-month-old daughter, Elizabeth titled her book this way. Why? Because she understood that this is where her husband was slain. This is where he died. It was under the shadow of the Almighty. It wasn't under the shadow of Satan. It was under the shadow of the Almighty. And because she understood that just a few years after her husband's death, Elizabeth, her three-year-old daughter, and Nate Saint, the pilot missionary who died, his sister Rachel, they went to live with the Aka Indians where they taught the Bible and they shared the gospel message of Jesus Christ to them. Remarkably, one of the first men to receive Christ as his Lord and Savior was a man named McKay. And Minkay was actually the one who had speared Nate Saint's father. Or, yeah, it speared him right through here. And years later, Nate Saint's son, Steve, he actually ended up going to this tribe to visit. And he was a believer. And he ended up becoming baptized by the very man who murdered his father. Isn't that remarkable? How could they do this? How could they let go of their passion for retribution, for justice, 
for violence to be returned. It's found in the next verse of Psalm 91. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God whom I trust. How could they face such danger and death willingly? Because they understood what Jim Elliot had written before when he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He who has an ears to hear, let him hear. Has the gospel radically transformed your life? Making so that you give up easily and quickly what you cannot keep in order to gain that which you cannot lose? If not, as we're about to sing in a moment, hear him ye deaf, ye praise ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ, ye blind behold your Savior come, and leap ye lame for joy. Father, I thank you for this text. A difficult one, but a wondrous one. So Lord, we ask that through the foolishness of preaching today, that this might have brought glory to your name and build up your saints for the work of the ministry. To go out and live for you, recognizing what Jim Elliot wrote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And we know that we cannot lose it, not because of our own self, not because of the power that we have, the commitment we have, it's simply because Christ lost everything in order to give us what he had. Father, I just pray that as a church, that we would long for your coming, that we would live expectantly looking to share the gospel with the poor, the poor in spirit, those who desperately need it, that we wouldn't just cling to those like us, to those who who we approve of, but we reach out to the downtrodden, to the outcasts of society, and that we would do so by your grace for your glory and the good of your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.